Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, the book of Revelation, chapter 11 continued. Last week we got well into Revelation chapter 11. And we discussed several important elements of that chapter, including the use of several numbers. And I was told afterwards, wow, I have no idea what you said. <laughs> so I'm not going to do it to you again. All right? But these numbers that we dealt with are important. Numbers are important. And particularly in the book of Revelation. And the numbers that we dealt with were 42, 3.5, and, and 1,260. And briefly what we found was that 42 months, 3 and one half years, 1,260 days, need to be viewed as essentially the same amount of time. Now you might say, well, gosh, that's a no-brainer. Right? But what we discussed was that there's a complexity of the Hebrew calendar. And we should not expect the precision in their ancient calendar to the extent that our modern calendars give us today. Therefore, despite some scientific realities about actual minor technical differences between 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days. It's just too insignificant to matter in the prophetic sphere. And further, that we ought to not seek to focus on any minor differences, minor differences, in time measurement concerning prophetic issues because such exactness was never the point. It was never the concern of that ancient writer. That is, the precise time was not as important as the event to which the appointed time pointed towards. It's the event that mattered. Or as we like to say in our day, the main thing is the main thing. The main thing is what we need to keep our eye on, not get distracted. It's doubly so concerning the Bible and the God principles that we learn from it. That said, we need to note that there is a symbolic difference in the number three and one half because, it, because three and one half is half of the number seven. Seven is the ideal number. It indicates divine direction, wholeness, perfection, completeness. Prophetically, it can indicate finality. So three and one half indicates something in which the journey towards wholeness has been arrested. Three and a half indicates something that has not achieved wholeness. It's neither complete nor perfect. This understanding about the significance of numbers then leads us to consider the duration of time that was presented to us in the next chapter of Revelation and in Daniel. And it's that famous phrase, a time, times, and half a time. I am convinced that this phrase is to be seen as numerically equivalent to three and one half in its duration. And that duration could be expressed in hours, days, months, years, whatever. However, it's fair to ask why the Bible would even use such a puzzling and, and ambiguous phrase as a time, times, and half a time instead of just saying three and a half. 
And in her previous lesson I offered the possibility that it was because of biblical numerology. What I mean by that is that since numbers have symbolic meaning in the Bible, then when God wants to express an amount or a quantity or a duration of something in terms that do not have that same symbolic meaning, then it can't be expressed using, using actual numbers. It can't use numerical digits. It has to be expressed with a word description. So while the number three and a half has the symbolic meaning of imperfection or the lack of wholeness, the word description, a time, times, and a half a time, doesn't have that same symbolism as three and a half. Even though we find in Daniel and in Revelation that it means the same duration of time as three and a half. So as applied to Revelation chapter 12, which we'll get into next week, when Israel goes into the desert to escape the beast and is supernaturally protected by God for three and one half years, also expressed as 1,260 days, same amount of time, we are not to take that time period as meaning something that is symbolically incomplete, symbolically imperfect. Therefore, the number three and a half is avoided. And instead, instead it's substituted with a word description. A time, times, and half a time. Even so, I want to make it clear that this is my personal assertion. I cannot say with absolute certainty that this is why the number three and a half at times is expressed in words as a time, times, and half a time. I'm going to have to let you be the judge about that. So chapter 11 opened with John being handed a measuring rod, an ancient measuring tape. And it was in order to measure a new temple. Now I pointed out that this temple was not the so-called millennial temple that will be built after the war of Armageddon. The temple that Christ will occupy for a thousand years. It's not that temple that he's measuring. Rather, the temple being measured is what I label the third temple. It's the one that will be built, possibly in our time, to replace Herod's temple, which was the second temple. That one that the Romans destroyed and to this day has not yet been rebuilt. It is the temple that the Antichrist will encourage to be built. But later he will enter it, defile it, and declare that it is a temple meant to glorify himself. And we are also meant to notice that there will be an enormous outer court called the court of the Gentiles. Because just as it was with Herod's temple, Gentiles will be encouraged to come and gaze in awe at this amazing structure even though they're not allowed too near to the holy sanctuary. And while on the surface such a thing as a court of the Gentiles seems like a, a fair, reasonable, a practical thing, to include in this new temple complex, this is not adhering to the biblical pattern. Gentiles, which in the Bible by definition means non-worshippers of the God of Israel, are not supposed to be allowed into the temple complex. It's only for Israelites. So right off the bat, we see that even the architectural design of this next temple, the temple that's coming, folks, we may see this built with our own eyes. The architectural design of the next temple is going to go against God and the pattern He laid down. 
Now we ended our last lesson with the introduction of these two mysterious witnesses who are sent by God to prophesy. And we learned that they will be supernaturally protected for 1,260 days, three and a half years, before they're finally killed. So that's where we're going to begin this week. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We are going to begin at verse 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, the page is 1542, 1542. We're going to start at verse 3. Revelation chapter 11. We'll read, uh, we'll read it all the way to the end. Also I gave power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. Now these are the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to do them harm, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes their enemies. Yes, if anyone tries to harm them, that's how he must die. They have the authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the period of their prophesying. Also, they have the authority to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. And when they finish their witnessing, the beast will come up out of the abyss, will fight against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city whose name to reflect its spiritual condition is Sodom in Egypt. It's the city where their Lord was executed on a stake. Some from the nations, tribes, languages, and peoples see their bodies for three and a half days and do not permit the corpses to be placed in a tomb. The people living in the land rejoice over them. They celebrate. They send each other gifts because these two prophets tormented them so. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then the two heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. In that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were awestruck, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. See, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded his shofar, or his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders sitting on their thrones in God's presence fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Oh, we thank you, Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is and was, that you have taken your power and have begun to rule. The Goyim, or the nations, raged. But now your rage has come. The time for the dead to be judged. The time for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your holy people. Those who stand in awe of your name, both small and great. It's also time for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder and earthquake and violent hail. That's quite a scene, isn't it? So the Lord is going to send two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days. Now they're going to be dressed in sackcloth and they're to be identified as the two olive trees and the two menorahs. Lampstands. That stand before the Lord of the earth. They have been given the ability to essentially protect themselves, much like mythical dragons do. They breathe fire, and they kill those who threaten them. They have the ability to stop the rain from falling, to turn water into blood, and to strike the earth with plagues. Now we're going to spend some time with this and add to what we discussed about them in our previous lesson. Now to understand the substance of these two prophets and even to get a handle on who or what they are, 
we must refer to the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Therefore, last week we looked at passages from Deuteronomy, Zechariah, and First and Second Kings. We found that numerical, the numerical symbolism of there being two witnesses has to do with the law about bringing someone to trial for a capital offense. It is that either two or three witnesses are required to give testimony against the accused. In this case, we actually have three witnesses. God plus the two witnesses. Who are the accused? Humanity. All of it. All of us. We find in those Old Testament scriptures that Elijah brought down fire upon those who would harm him. And he stopped the rain. It is important that we remember that the rain was stopped for how long by Elijah? Three and a half years. As the amount of time and what it symbolizes is central to end times activities in Revelation. And it was Moses, of course, who struck the land of Egypt with plagues. And he turned the water to blood. So there's a lot of similarity between these two witnesses and Elijah and Moses. And in the case of both men, the purpose for their destructive activities was so that people would turn from their sin, which at that time was mainly idolatry. And instead they would seek God. So the mention of these two witnesses, who are prophets, wearing sackcloth is to connect them with the Old Testament prophets who wore sackcloth as a sign of mourning over the Israelites whom they were prophesying against. Their prophecy, as with most prophets, was condemning Israel for their rebellion and their sin. The hope was for repentance. And the mourning garments the prophets wore and that the two witnesses will wear, will wear are therefore related to repentance. Mourning and repentance are related. So who are these two witnesses that play such a critical role in the end times events and exactly when do they appear? Now these two questions are enormous in their impact on end times doctrines and on the end times timeline of events. So as you might imagine, the answers to these two critical questions vary all over the map. Mostly according to which denomination one belongs to. The answers to these questions are so meaningful that we're going to spend quite a bit of time with them so here we go. I believe the best place to start is to go back in time to the earliest of the church fathers. Those church fathers who commented on the question of the identity of these two witnesses and what they might symbolize. So I'm just going to summarize for you the positions of various of the early church fathers drawing heavily from the ancient Christian commentary on scripture to do so. Now at times I'll quote, at other times I'll paraphrase, paraphrase rather just for the sake of expediency. <clears throat> Alright, Ocumenius, who lived in the 900s AD, himself drew heavily on the recorded thoughts of the earliest church fathers from the second and third centuries. And he had this to say about the identity of the two witnesses. Just as the coming of Christ in humiliation was announced by John the Baptist, so his coming in the glory of the Father will be announced by Elijah and Enoch. 
So the assertion is that these two witnesses of Revelation are Elijah and Enoch. And their primary purpose, why are they here? Is to announce the second coming of Messiah, his return. However, Hippolytus, writing around 200 AD, in other words, not much more than 100 years after John wrote down his visions in Revelation, adds this. It may be, however, that John also will return at the end along with Elijah and Enoch. He's referring to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who's writing the book. But he acknowledges that he thinks these two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. Victorinus in the mid-200s AD wrote in his commentary on Revelation or instead of John it will be the prophet Jeremiah who along with Elijah returns to announce the Lord's coming. Victorinus then thinks the two, witness, two, two witnesses will be Elijah and Jeremiah. So we see that when these early church fathers attempted to identify the two witnesses, it was a foregone conclusion that Elijah was going to be one of them. Although the other one was not agreed upon unanimously. And yet, others of the church fathers saw things quite differently. Tychonius, writing in the late 300s AD, says, The two witnesses symbolize as well the two testaments by which God governs and rules his church. So to Tychonius, the two witnesses are just figurative of the Old and New Testaments. And by the way, the New Testament that he's referring to, the other testament, had only been in existence about 150 years or so by his day. So he was new. Also notice how Tychonius equally honored the Old and New Testaments. And unlike the modern church, he saw the Old Testament as fully in force in the end times. Fully. Now, Primatius who lived in the mid-500s A.D., said this, The two witnesses are said to be two olive trees and two lampstands because they represent the one church which is formed from the two peoples of the Jews and the Gentiles and is illuminated by the two testaments which pour the oil of knowledge into the church. So Primatius, like Tychonius, view the two witnesses as symbolic and figurative. But we also have in Primatius a very early church father who acknowledges that the Jews are every bit as much a part of the church as are Gentiles. And who agrees with Tychonius that both the Old and the New Testaments remain as divine illumination for the church. What an amazingly different attitude some of these early church fathers had about the inclusion of Jews and the continuing relevance of the Old Testament than what we hear from the pulpits today. And how far away modern Christian thoughts can be from those of the earliest church leaders who were closest in history to the time of the Jewish Christ and the Jewish apostles. Essentially, sad to say, the modern church is attempting to rewrite Bible history to its liking. Mostly, to, frankly, to appease who? The world. It's to appease the world. And yet, even in the time of the earliest church fathers, we see them separating the institution of the church from its Hebrew heritage. Because Tychonius also says this 
that God had done for the church, He has given to the church. Therefore, the church has the power of binding and loosing so that she can cause the rain of blessing to cease to fall upon the earth. So while this is not quite replacement theology, it smacks of an attitude that these two witnesses are all about the Gentile church. A church that operates on the assumption that even though Jews are part of it, their conversion to Christianity means they are less Jewish and more Gentile-like than their non-believing Jewish brothers. Now, Ocumenius, commenting on the supernatural power that was given to these two witnesses, says that similarly, at the end of times, God will give great power to his two prophets, for they will promote truth and light by signs and wonders, even as the Antichrist, by false signs, advances the cause of deceit and darkness. So now we're starting to deal with the when of the two witnesses. And Ocumenius says that the two witnesses will operate as prophets of truth and light during the same time period that the Antichrist will be operating as a false prophet of lies and darkness. That is, the two witnesses and the Antichrist, he says, will appear simultaneously. Hippolytus writes, The preaching of the two witnesses will be met with great resistance by the Antichrist who will exalt himself and glorify himself as God. So, Hippolytus and Ocumenius agree that the two witnesses and the Antichrist are contemporaries. They'll be there at the same time. But Hippolytus also thinks this. Yet tradition says that the Antichrist will arise by God's allowance from the tribe of Dan and hence from the iniquitous hearts of the Jews. So here we have firm evidence that early on, some segments of the Gentile church formed a doctrine that the Antichrist would be a Jew, specifically from the tribe of Dan. And this because, in their view, Jews' hearts were incorrigibly sinful. And on yet another aspect, of this section in Revel of Revelation chapter 11, Ocumenius reckons that the Jerusalem of the Antichrist will be seen as Sodom and Egypt because it will enslave and abuse the servants of Christ and will be noted for its licentiousness. The term servants of Christ are referring to believers in general who apparently are still on earth. So there we have a pretty good all-around picture of what early Gentile church fathers thought about these two witnesses. But now let's go back and examine the scriptures ourselves and see what conclusions we can draw. In Malachi 3.23, in the complete Jewish Bible, or four or five in other English translations, we read this. Look, I will send to you Eliel, Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. Let me repeat that. Malachi, the prophet, says, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is because of this prophetic passage that Jews look for Elijah to appear in the future, whereupon he will announce the arrival of a Messiah. Much of Judaism 
believes Elijah will come on Passover. So that is why it's traditional to set an extra place setting at the Passover table just in case Elijah shows up. Nonetheless, it is beyond a doubt that this passage in Malachi plainly says that prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord, Judgment Day, Elijah the prophet will come to herald it. And in light of that, it is no wonder that the early church fathers more or less agreed with the Jews and said that one of these two witnesses has to be Elijah. Now when you add in the reference to fire, to the stopping of rain for three and a half years, he is prophesying, it's hard to argue against such a conclusion. Now another reason that many say one of the witnesses must be Elijah is because he didn't die. Rather, he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. They see this as important because in the book of Hebrews, we read this in Hebrews 9.27, Just as human beings have to die once, but after this comes judgment, that's the statement, or in its more familiar form that we find in the, in, in the King James Version, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. However, it is my opinion that this statement about all humans dying once is all about prefacing what comes immediately following that. I just read to you from Hebrews 9.27. Here's 9.28. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who uh, are eagerly awaiting him. So the idea is this. Just as humans have to die once, so also the Messiah dies once. But he dies once to bear the sins for everyone. He doesn't have to die an individual death for each person who trusts him. His one-time death for all on the cross is sufficient. However, for humans, after we die, a day of judgment will come. But Messiah will not have a day of judgment after he dies. He will come again, fully alive, in order to deliver those humans who wait for him to come. The point being that the author of Hebrews is speaking of the obvious fact that humans have to die once. There's no escape from it. The idea is not to make death a hard and fast spiritual principle. Rather, it is a self-evident general rule of all flesh, human or animal, that death comes to all creatures, period, end. And yet, there are notable exceptions. And Elijah was one of them. But even so, this statement in Hebrews does not imply that if a human like Elijah is translated into heaven to avoid his physical death, that at some point God must return that human to earth so that person can die, since all humans are appointed once to die. That's not what it's trying to say. Okay, let me give you another obvious example that death will not be required of all humans. It's not a spiritual principle. The rapture. How about that? The standard Christian belief about the rapture is not that there will be a sudden mass worldwide death 
and then all at once believers' souls will kind of crowd their way into heaven. Rather it is that in some instantaneous, painless, non-traumatic way, we'll shed these fragile bodies on earth and just appear in heaven. Don't ask me how. That is, raptured believers will avoid physical death. That's the point. In fact, the avoidance of death and pain and anguish is supposed to be the whole point of the rapture. So assuming that's the case, then there will be countless millions that because of rapture will not die once as is appointed to all humans. And there is nothing said in the scriptures that those believers who are raptured away and escaped death have to be sent back in a while so that they can die once. That's the point of that little cartoon that you see there. The issue of the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews statement of humans having to die once plays a role for some people in trying to identify the two witnesses because they insist we have to find some Old Testament characters who didn't die. Why? Because the two witnesses of Revelation do die after three and a half years of prophesying. And thus, if they died before, then they're disqualified because we find them dying again. See the point? See, I think this entire notion is a red herring. And it throws us completely off track. So indeed, one of the two witnesses could be Elijah, because we have scripture saying that he will appear before Judgment Day, and because the description of what the witness can supernaturally do are exactly what Elijah did when he was alive. And of course, while turning water to blood and striking the ground with plagues exactly fits Moses, some say, well, it can't be Moses. Why? He died. He died once. However, I think there's another clue about the identity of these two witnesses that we shouldn't overlook. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. I'll read it to you. Six days later, Yeshua took Kepha, Peter, Yaakov, that's um, uh, James and his brother John, and led them up to a high mountain privately. And as they watched, he began to change form. His face shone like the sun. His clothing became as white as light. And then they looked and they saw Moses and Elijah speaking with him. And Peter said to Yeshua, Oh, it's good that we're here, Lord. I'll put up three shelters if you want. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they were so frightened, they fell face down on the ground. But Yeshua came and touched them. He said, Get up. Don't be afraid. So they opened their eyes, looked up, and saw only Yeshua by himself. And as they came down the mountain, Yeshua ordered them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Well, then why do the Torah teachers say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, On the one hand, follow me now, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. But on the other hand, I tell you that Elijah has already come and people did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man too is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist.
first. What's the significance of Elijah, Moses, and Yeshua all appearing together? It is to show the unity of God's word. Elijah is the chief of all prophets. Moses is the chief of the Torah and the law. And Yeshua is the Messiah that the prophets and the Torah together point to. In Christian terms, we have the chief representatives of the Old Testament together with the chief representative of the New Testament. If the law and the prophets were dead and gone and no longer relevant, but only the New Testament had relevance, then it makes no sense to have the three chief representatives dialoguing together in front of the disciples for a show of unity. Second now, when Yeshua swears to secrecy, his disciples who witnessed this amazing scene they were confused so they asked why then why does the Torah do the Torah teachers say that Elijah must come first and Yeshua replies with a statement that initially baffles the disciples but then they get it it is that Elijah is coming in two different senses. The first sense is, is that he's coming in the future. The second sense is he's already come. But people hadn't recognized him. The disciples then understood the past tense sense of his coming as a symbolically meaning John the Baptist. Bottom line, Elijah indeed is going to come in the future, right from the mouth of Christ. And according to the prophet Malachi, and it will be to announce the judgment of humankind on the day of the Lord. So I agree with several of the early church fathers that one of those two witnesses must be Elijah. Must be. And with less evidence, I also think the other witness will be Moses. Because the descriptions are just so strikingly familiar and similar and because they both appeared with Christ at the Transfiguration. That said, some believe it could be two men who are very similar in kind to Elijah and Moses. These men will be otherwise regular, normal human beings living during the time of the end, but they will be empowered by God to do very similar things as Elijah and Moses did. Yet to that possibility, <clears throat> I think some words in Revelation 11.4 make it highly unlikely. Revelation 11.4 these are the two olive trees and two menorahs standing before the Lord of the earth. The key word is standing. The two witnesses are here described figuratively as being the two olive trees and two menorahs. And they are said to be standing before the Lord. In other words, the two witnesses are already in heaven with the Lord standing before him right then <clears throat> it would make very little sense if these two witnesses were just humans that were alive and already living on earth during the time of the Antichrist because they could not possibly have also been standing before the Lord in heaven as the two olive trees and two menorahs I had the caveat that since this is unfulfilled prophecy, I can't be 100% sure of my interpretations or identifications, so I'm not at all dogmatic about it. And my advice is for you to not be dogmatic about it either. 
Now I want to point out a couple of facts before we move along. It would be accurate, I think, to say that the last prophet in the Bible is the Apostle John who wrote down his divine visions into the work we call the book of Revelation. And I state pretty confidently there have been no divinely ordained prophets appearing to God's people since John. Even though thousands, literally thousands, maybe millions of Christians have anointed themselves as prophets. Therefore, the next divinely ordained prophet to appear in history are going to be these two witnesses appearing together. And who better than the chief of prophets, Elijah, and Moses, who was also a prophet, the once famously said in Deuteronomy, add this to the mix, Deuteronomy 18, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But you, Adonai your God, does not allow you to do this. Adonai will raise up for you a prophet like me from among yourselves, from your own kinsmen. You're to pay attention to him just as when you were assembled at Horev. That was Moses speaking. So now let's move on to Revelation 11, verse 7. There we read that when the two witnesses have finished their witnessing, the beast comes up from the abyss who will fight against them and he will kill them. Now we learned back in chapter 9 that this abyss is not the grave, but rather it is the realm of of unclean, rebellious demons. So the beast, a very special demon, is probably Satan himself, or perhaps the spirit of Satan. Now I offer that alternative only because when speaking of God, we can also speak of the spirit of God, the Ruach, and not necessarily mean God the Father, even though they are echad, they're one, they're fully unified. Another possibility is that this is speaking of the Antichrist, who kills the two witnesses, because the spirit of Satan, the beast, inhabits the Antichrist. Somewhere within that sphere of thought, that the beast is satanic and probably the chief demon, Satan, that becomes personified in the Antichrist is where the reality of all this lies. But why are the two witnesses killed? Think about this. Why are they killed? Who wants them dead? The answer lies in what happened to the prophets of old. It was their job to take a message of warning and or of reproval or even condemnation from God to certain groups of rebellious Israelites. And the, the usual reaction was for these rebellious Israelites to try to kill the prophet. Why? Because people don't want to hear that they're doing wrong. People want their sin affirmed as good. People don't want to hear the truth if it rebukes their lifestyle, if it deprives them of something they want. People get angry when they're told they're behaving wickedly. Coupled with the fact that these witnesses are empowered to shut off the rain, to turn water to blood, to bring on unnamed plagues. No doubt they're going to do these things. Why else would they be given the power? So people are going to hate them. Desperately want to see them dead.
But notice that even though, even through all this hatred against them, they survive. Because their God-appointed period of prophesying was not yet up. Their mission, and therefore their lifespans, could not be interrupted, could not be arrested, until their purpose in life was completed. No doubt many will attempt to stop their teaching, their prophesying, their destructive actions by killing them, but they're going to fail. And in most cases, they will be killed by the fire that these two witnesses bellow from their mouths. What were they prophesying about? No doubt about the sins of mankind and the end that was just days or weeks away. And also of the good news of salvation in Yeshua. Where were they prophesying? Verse 8 says, They were prophesying in the city where their Lord was executed on a stake. It can be no other than Jerusalem. No doubt the people that were being spoken to were primarily the Jewish people. And since the bulk of Jews have resisted to this day of accepting their Messiah, it should be no surprise that when the two witnesses show up, the bent against accepting Yeshua of Nazareth as Messiah is violence. Especially in view of all these catastrophic events of the seal and trumpet judgments that have been occurring. So here we have a couple of Jews witnessing to hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalemites are not happy about it. Certainly their prophetic oracle, these two witnesses' prophetic oracle was known far and wide. And so many times more Gentiles heard it than Jews. But God chose Jerusalem and Israel to send his prophets to witness because their main concern, his main concern at this time was to save as many of his chosen people as possible. It pains me to no end that the holy city I have visited so many times will have by then become so spiritually degraded that to God, Jerusalem, Jerusalem will seem no different in its level of wickedness than Egypt and Sodom. We'll continue in our study of Revelation 11 next week.